welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we talk to students, educators, and thought leaders who are innovators and creatives in education. I'm your host, Tanya Sheckley. Thanks for joining us. I'm joined today by Lonnie Beltrist. Lonnie is and always will be a teacher. She started her career in education, teaching at a public school in San Diego, and really got bit by the project-based learning bug when she started doing graduate work at High Tech High Graduate School of Education. She began to try, sometimes with little success, to do projects in her own classroom uh, and realized clearly that students needed real-world projects, but would probably never have access to that type of learning. She left her school to go teach at High Tech High, knowing one day her mission would be to bring project-based learning to students who needed it the most. Since 2014, Lonnie's been working with schools around the world to reimagine education. Her project-based learning expertise has been used in several institutions, including Real Projects, an innovation unit in the United Kingdom, and Leaps with the Kata Foundation in Denmark. And more recently, you founded Imagine If, so can you tell us more about the challenge that you saw in education and your need and desire to found this organization? Yeah, well, uh, like you said, Tanya, my background is as a teacher, and I've always come to this work with the teacher's perspective. And one of the biggest challenges I found is that there's so many people that agree with project-based learning. They agree with the ideas. They agree that learning should be authentic. But the biggest question I get is, what does this look like? on Tuesday morning for my fourth graders? You know, what, what does this look like over a long period of time? What does this look like over a whole year? And imagine if really serves as a bridge between this theoretical world that we talk about, that we see online a lot about what education needs to be, and then what does it look like? So as teachers that have worked in traditional schools and also like High Tech High, for example, which uses a lot of authentic project-based learning, I'd imagine if we kind of provide this bridge to be able to actually help schools see what this looks like on Tuesday morning with their fourth graders and over a long period of time. So are you actually in the classroom with educators or are you providing professional development directly to educators? How does that process work to help educators create Thursday morning in fourth grade? (laughs) <laughs> well, um, there's kind of there's two approaches that we work from. The first is is more of a workshop model, professional development model, where we come in and do a four hour workshop about what is project based learning. We develop some projects, and the teachers kind of go off and do it. Um, but actually, we've been working more on a long term support project with schools. So we're actually on site at a school for two days a week over a whole year. And that allows us to be not only in the classroom talking with kids and saying, you know, how is this working for you and what can we do differently and being able to see it from a student's perspective, but we're also involved with planning meetings of teachers. So we get to actually be there every week and understand how they're thinking about projects and how to kind of disrupt some of that thinking and support them to develop even better projects. And also just being at the school to support for all of those little conversations that come up you know, some of those little things where a teacher comes back into their office and they're like, oh, I just don't know what to do about this kid. Like we're there to be able to say, okay, well, let's talk about this student. Like how can we actually think about this student in the project? And actually this long-term kind of really intensive support helps to move a school 
faster and also more significantly than these kind of one-off workshops um, that I think a lot of professional development groups do. It's another thing that I've heard in talking with principals and talking about bringing this into schools is how are you going to support it? Uh, Because it's the thing that they really need because teachers get it. And like you said, people are talking about it. People understand it. I think a lot of people in the education world agree that it's a really great way to teach, but teachers really need that support for how to do it on the ground and an ongoing basis. Otherwise, what happens is they go into a workshop and it sounds great and they develop a project and it looks really cool and they go into their classroom and part of it kind of works and part of it kind of doesn't work and it's their first take and that's going to happen. And that's for the learning process for all of us. But then they go, oh, well, it didn't really work. And it's just easier to go back to what I was teaching. And so it's really great that you offer that ongoing support so that schools really can make that change more than just in philosophy, but actually real change that affects students. Yeah. And I think there's there's an element that um, I've come to understand a little bit better that actually this this implementation of project-based learning, like the pedagogical approach is one thing. So how do we plan projects and do projects? But then there's the whole element of like, how does the school need to change? Because if you're still trying to do projects and squeeze learning into like one hour lessons, for example, or if you're still doing projects where kids need to rotate to a different class every hour, it's really difficult to do deeper learning with PBL. So we have to also look at, okay, what are all of these organizational conditions around learning? How do we reimagine them around project-based learning? And then the final thing is actually that people are going through a change process and that's messy and it can be ugly and people can Mm -hmm. resist it and it can be fantastic. But oftentimes schools need someone on site who has just been through that a bunch of times and can say, hey, yeah, how this teacher is reacting is normal. Like they're going through a change. And that kind of, um, yeah, that kind of perspective, I think, is really important when teachers start to use this. I think a lot of us have been really focused on the PBL part, which, of course, is really important. But the change process is also, I think, equally as important when we're working with normal traditional schools to do something new. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And it's, it's interesting hearing you talk. It's almost like you're providing social emotional learning for the teachers going through the change. <laughs> it's a lot like that. It isn't just about the curriculum. <laughs> So let me ask, you've you've worked with schools in the U.S., you've worked with schools in Denmark, you've worked with schools in the U.K. Do you see that process being any different in any of, you know, the different countries that you've worked in? Or do you see really the change and the struggles being very similar? I see them being very similar. And I see actually the biggest difference is the school itself. So I've worked with brilliant schools in U.S., U.K., and Denmark that have been really easy and adaptive to change, actually. Um, And then I've also worked with schools in each country that are just, yeah, change (laughs) just does not happen quickly. I will say that the UK, generally, the way that the system is set up is so focused. Of course, every system right now is focused on exams and curriculum and tests and things like that. The UK, though, is especially focused on this. They actually have a group called Ofsted that at any time can do a surprise visit to your school and basically shut it down if it's not measuring as satisfactory. So there's a big fear in the UK around doing anything different, which is why there are a lot of free schools and private schools that are doing great things. But the traditional public school is really quite immovable there. Um, And that's something I have seen be quite different from the US and Denmark. 
of course, we still have those kind of constraints and things we need to comply with in the traditional schools. But I would say the UK, it's like that times maybe 25 or something. Do you think that this, I mean, this current period of time where we've been out of school, where families are homeschooling, where schools are distance learning, where a lot of families are what we call crisis schooling at this point, are they doing that same thing in the UK? And do you think that this moment in time will help to shift that mindset in any way? You know, it's funny, I've really been reflecting on this um, because at first when the shutdown happened, I thought, okay, this is it. This is the disruption we've all been waiting for. Like this, of course, this is a crisis and a very serious thing. But in terms of education, you know, I think a lot of us have been trying to stop the wheel for a long time and put in a disruption and say, okay, now we reimagine things. Um, The shutdown itself, I think in some countries is going to be significant, like the UK and and the US. I mean, we're looking at a really long period of time before schools can move back into physical buildings, right? But here in Denmark, we, we moved back in six weeks. And so the disruption here has actually been not the shutdown, but it's been moving back into the physical space. And that's where I actually think or starting to think that the disruption is going to happen. I think the the shutdown itself is, of course, disruptive, but I think we might just chalk this up to like coronavirus time, you know, and when we go back to the physical space, we'll just kind of carry on business as usual. And I mean, that's a fear that I have. But the interesting thing here is when we've moved back into the physical buildings, we have to do social distancing. Classes are now like 10 to 15 kids. They can only have one, maybe two teachers that they interact with. The school day is shorter. Kids are outside learning as much as possible. The learning actually isn't so much based on subject curriculum because the exams are gone. The learning goals are gone. And there's been an article today in the newspaper that kids and teachers actually love this, that this is like, this is the disruption they've been waiting for. Um, So I think actually, I'm starting to understand that maybe the real power in rethinking and reimagining education is going to be when we go back into a space that we can't function normally in anymore. And that's going to maybe be the, the most interesting shift in, in how we do school. Yeah, it's something that there's a lot of talk about here as well, especially with, you know, is it going to be a shortened class day? Are students only going to be in class two days a week and distance learning two days a week? How do we support that blended learning, you know, this new blended at home learning atmosphere and environment and still keep our kids, quote unquote, on track (laughs) to where they need to be? Um, And you recently wrote an article called 53 Hacks for the Socially Distanced Classroom, talking about how to do project based learning and how do you do connection and collaboration in a classroom that is socially distanced. Can you share some of those hacks and ideas about how that might work and what things, you know, when we are in the classroom, what that might look like? Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest things is just that there is going to be a need for control. I mean, students actually physically need to be in one spot or confined to a room because we need to stop the spread. Or if something does break out, the schools need to be able to close down the classrooms where the student has been or what they, who they've interact with, I should say. So, um, yeah, so the piece was just about, like, what are some really small things that we can do to integrate the values of PBL? So, like, the authenticity, the collaboration, having student-owned learning, 
how can we do that in a situation where kids are, you know, in tables far away from each other? Um, so some of those hacks are really simple. Like it's, it might just be, um, yeah, like going outside and going geocaching, for example, um, which is something that, yeah, at least in the United States, people are really into and in Denmark here as well. But also it might be something more complex, like, for example, having each class contribute to a news uh, broadcast each week so that actually the collaboration isn't sitting next to someone collaborating, but the collaboration is building something together as a community to feel connected and to learn from each other. So really simple things to more complex things, but the hope is to take away this feeling that kids need to be seated in a desk doing worksheets, you know, for however long period of time, because we need that control in the classroom. So there's still small ways that we can include these values of PBL, even if we're not doing full on project-based learning because of these restrictions. I love that. I love how you kind of break it down and scale it back instead of doing the full project, but what is why are we doing the project? What is the value behind that? And how can we still ignite that value with more distance in between us? I think that's a great way to look at it. One of the schools here that I work with, they, they took their, they weren't having choir practice because it's too close together, right? So they decided to have choir practice outside and they went to a nursing home and they actually opened up the doors of the nursing home and the kids socially distanced were singing outside to, you know, the elderly people. And just including that piece of an audience, I mean, that's, that's a real value of PBL. And that's something super simple that I think we can do a lot in our teaching um, that doesn't need to, yeah, like we've said, have the full-blown PBL approach every day. If we're looking, I mean, if we are looking more towards PBL and we're looking more towards blended learning, how do you think educators can be successful in, in providing a blended learning environment and some PBL you know, values and inspiration when the skills, the skills and technology are so different than standing in front of a classroom. I guess my question is, how are those skills different and how can educators be successful still in a, the changing environment? Well, I think the one motto of PBL that I always live by is to do less and do it better. And I think that when we found right away is that teachers were taking this full body of curriculum and just putting it online and that that was extremely overwhelming to students and to parents at home that were trying to, you know, help their kids. Right. And we've all had different experiences, of course, with this in the shutdown. But I think looking forward, I mean, I could definitely see an approach where we have more of a blended approach to learning, but that maybe it would almost be like a flipped classroom where the time at home is where students are digging into things that they're passionate about, things that they have questions about, things that they're really interested in. So they don't need a teacher there kind of motivating them. And then perhaps the online learning could be some of more of those fundamental skills or tools that kids need in order to use it on their own. I definitely think an approach like that is in the cards. It's sounding like for the United States, for sure. Um, but I think the biggest thing, at least to think about, is just, are we transferring what we do normally to an online setting, or are we actually including this project-based learning work in the home learning as well? Yeah, so talking about the home learning, you're an educator and you're a parent. So what what are you doing at home to support your kids, or what were you doing during the short break to support your kids? Or what advice can you give to parents in other countries, especially parents who are afraid their child is falling behind or is missing learning? Um, what types of things you know, can they be doing? Should they be doing? What should they worry about? What should they not worry about? What are your thoughts? 
Well, the first week I was like, okay, we're going to have a lot of structure. We're going to do school. Like I'm a teacher. I got this, you know? And then, and then after the first week, I realized that I was literally like pulling teeth out of my kids, trying to get them, like dragging them through some kind of learning program here. So I just abandoned all of that. And I said, okay, you know what? We're going to have some structure to the day because my kids are really little and they need some kind of, you know, structure to the day. Mm -hmm. Um, But we're going to actually do stuff that they're really interested in. So we would do little things like they're very young. So we would have a letter for the day and then they would come up with all the words about the letter. And then we would go out and explore everything that had to do with that letter of the alphabet. It's something really little, but it made me feel like, okay, we're still kind of staying on track here, but it's really coming from the kids. That lasted for a couple weeks. Then after that, I realized that actually the more time that they had at home, the more that they were taking this initiative to play together, to kind of self-direct their own learning in a way. And that there was actually a real beauty in being able to see what the kids were interested in and not necessarily like embed learning into that, but to have just small conversations and be present with them about the things that they were doing and they were experiencing. I will say that I was trying to work while doing all of this. And my husband is a doctor, so he worked through the whole coronavirus shutdown. So being a single mom at home with three kids and trying to work some days was just madness. I mean, there were days where I just count down to bedtime um, or wine time or, you know, whatever it was. Um, so, so it's not easy, definitely not easy. And I can understand the, the, the feeling of like my kid is going to be left behind, right? But I also think that some of that is a product of the system that we're in. You know, we, we have a system that tells us that if our kids are not reaching certain curriculum goals by a certain age, they're not performing in a certain way by a certain period of time that they're going to fall behind or they're not going to be able to be successful or they're going to end up in a van down by the river because their whole life is going to go go down. And I think the most important thing right now is that our kids are experiencing joy and that they're experiencing that this is not a scary situation to be panicked about. But this, I think in the best situation, is an opportunity for us to connect again. I know that that's not the case for all kids. And there are a lot of kids that are really struggling right now because their home situation is is less than ideal. And so we need schools for these other reasons as well. But as far as the learning goes, I think the most important thing is to have happy kids. And if we can return to school with happy kids, I actually think the learning is going to fall into place. It's going to be much easier for kids to learn when they're happy then if they come back to school in a situation where they have anxiety or stress or depression because they've had to keep up with this wheel, you know, during this shutdown period. Um, And that's, I mean, we, again, only had some weeks of shutdown here. So that's not just my experience, but it's what I actually believe about learning. We have to have happy kids in order to have good learning. Yeah. I mean, it's the base of life, right? (laughs) You've got to, You've got to have a base where you can actually, you know, open your mind and accept new things before we can do anything for all of us. Um, It's interesting, though. A lot of what you said, I found the same thing with my own kids. Um, And they are doing some distance learning and we're online a few hours a day with an educator. And they've really enjoyed that, keeping some structure and keeping the schedule. But it's also freed up so much time to do other things. My six-year-old is writing a book right now as part of his project-based learning. They're talking about then and now and learning about hieroglyphs and Chinese calligraphy and the printing press. 
And so they need to write a book in one of these styles. Yeah. So he sits down last night to start writing his book and he goes, mom, can I turn it into a movie? Like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, let's write the book first. And then you can start working on the movie. <laughs> like, I'm happy to support you to do that. But the, yeah. things like that. And just that, even that idea that it can continue on doesn't necessarily happen in a classroom because we're so directed by what's happening, even in a project-based learning, still directed by what's happening with our educators. Yeah. Um, and so it's been fun to see. But you brought up several points in your answer um, around assessment um, yeah. and around, you know, what is what is on track. And I would imagine that even just when we look at the education system, what kids are learning in kindergarten in Denmark versus kindergarten in the UK versus kindergarten in the US and what those expectations are, are very different. Mm -hmm. And so this is one of the things that I continue to think about, about falling behind. I'm like, well, what is behind because we're behind on this arbitrary timeline that somebody somewhere or a group of people somewhere set up that's different all over the world. And so are we behind or are we actually ahead of kids in another country or like a, what difference does that make? Because yeah. we're all humans and we all develop at different times and different ways. So out of curiosity, you know, here a lot of the kindergartens expect kids to be reading at the end of kindergarten. Is that the case in Denmark? Is that the case in other countries? We actually don't even start kindergarten until the kids are six, nearly seven years old. So, so all of that like formalized learning doesn't actually start until they're much older. And the focus is really on play. It's on social skills. It's on how to share. It's on a lot of these um, yeah, soft skills, I guess you could say, but things that we're finding are increasingly important in adults, not just kids. And kids here are no, no further behind, I would say, than anywhere else. In fact, I think as you look over time, I would say that the Danish curriculum is actually more rigorous and demanding as kids get older than in the UK and the US. And I think a big part of that is because they wait. They, they just wait until kids are more ready for that kind of academic rigorous learning. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and then, you know, parents here are worried about falling behind. But when you look on the grand scale of things, it's kids just need to be happy. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a really great movement with the University of California schools abandoning the ACT and SAT requirement. So I think that there's, there is talk on higher levels as well for these types of assessments and these types of barriers to higher education, for example. Are these things really necessary? And I think when you look at the impact of that trickling down to high school, to middle school, to elementary school, I mean, I think we start to see a loosening up on some of this, um, yeah, this feeling behind or anxiety that we put on a lot of this, you know, quote, learning. It's just interesting that, you know, when kids grow up and they're babies, like we always say, well, there's milestones, but every kid is different. You know, like my kids reach the same milestone, like six months difference sometimes. I mean, it was, you know, and we just, oh, they're, they're learning at their own pace, like they're doing it, right? And then somehow when we get into school, it all has to happen at once, at the same time, down to the same day sometimes, you know, and, and that kind of, I guess, rigid structure in school, I think is, is very problematic and feeds into all of our anxieties about falling behind or keeping up. And we're products of that. You know, we probably went to school similar and our parents had similar mm -hmm. concerns about our future as well. So we can't really be at fault for that. But I do think that it's time to reimagine what we want our schools to be and not just what we've always done before. 
Yeah. And that's from assessment. It's from projects. It's from allowing our kids to follow their interests, um, which is something you've brought up a couple of times in working with schools and the time that you get to spend now when you're there, when you're on campus with them is actually hearing the student perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how important it is to talk to students and see what they want to learn or ask them how the project's going for them? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really, really important. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that when when teachers first start to work with project-based learning, you know, we, we make the project plan and we kind of go into it like, okay, this is our project. And then after a certain amount of time, I think the teachers start to feel more comfortable to open up certain elements of the project to having a lot more student choice. For example, like kids doing their own research or developing their own solutions or finding their own products to make. And, and that process invites them in. But I think the ultimate goal with project-based learning is actually that kids are are co-creators in this process and that instead of the teacher coming in with a completely designed project, that we actually include the kids in this process and also check in with them along the process of how things are going. I know as a teacher myself, sometimes I was afraid to do that because what happens if they weren't (laughs) like into the project, you know? Like I might design this this amazing project that's interesting to me, but maybe it just falls short with my kids. And I think the the sweet spot of PBL is being able to see the project as something that's flexible, something that's able to be adapted to the needs of our kids. And when we get to that point and we can take a student and say, okay, for Johnny, he's just not into this. Let's ask Johnny, how do you see yourself in this? What are you interested in this? How could you take like your son, how could you do a movie after the book? Um, And sometimes it might be small things that we can do to change the project to fit the needs of kids. And sometimes it's really big things. But no matter what, I think the learning has to be relevant and authentic to the students or else we're missing a really big uh, opportunity actually with using project-based learning. Yeah, I love that idea of having students be the co-creators. And by turning them into co-creators, it brings up something you brought earlier, which allows the teacher to really do more while doing less because the students are able to co-create their learning experience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's probably a great place to wrap up for today. (laughs) I mean, I could keep talking and we could keep talking, I think, for quite a long time. (laughs) Um, Is there anything else that's pressing that you wanted to cover or wanted to talk about before before we wrap up? I think um, the only other thing that I would say is, you know, I think a lot of times uh, project-based learning comes in as this kind of solution to schools or what schools could be. And I think that that's an important thing to say. But I think the most important thing is actually that we are able to see schools as flexible and agile communities. And and that that's actually maybe more important than using project-based learning or like a specific pedagogical approach. And we've seen with the, the shutdown for coronavirus that the schools that have been able to be agile, smaller usually, have actually been able to fit the needs of learners much better and differently than these kind of dinosaur school systems that have worked, you know, for the same way for a really long time. So in addition to everything that we've talked about today, I think reimagining education puts that agileness of schools um, as really an important and significant thing in this process. Yeah. So regardless of whether it's project-based learning or another pedagogy, it's really that ability to be flexible and create a learning experience that's going to suit 
both your school, but also more importantly, your students and the community and the families that you serve. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point. How can people get in touch with you? Do you want to share any contact information? Yeah, you can visit our website at imagineif.dk or you can email me at lonnie at imagineif.dk as well. there's, we're also on LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter. So you can find us in any of those places by Imagine If. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. It's wonderful to hear your perspective and your international experience. And I'm sure a lot of people will find some really useful information. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank and you, Tanya. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Rebel Educator Podcast. To learn more about us, visit rebeleducator.com, where you can learn about our professional development opportunities for educators and students and see our project library. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, check out our progressive, inclusive elementary school, Up Academy, at upacademysf.com. We'd like to say a special thank you to Atmosphere for use of their audio track, Miho. Thanks again for joining us, and we wish you well no matter where your educational journey may lead.